This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The Progressive, Something Wonky, The Majority Report, On the Media, and Common Sense with Dan Carlin. So right now we don't know who did it. We do know it is an act of terrorism and that it was planned out and coordinated. Now, this is an interesting moment in time as we evaluate this story without knowing who did it. And I think it's very important to set the ground rules basically for how we should react no matter who did it. Now, there are some people, who, of course, who immediately think that it was might have been Muslim terrorists. That suspicion is perfectly understandable. There are some who believe it might be right-wing terrorists. That suspicion is also understandable. Let me give you a sense of why. First of all, it was tax day. Second of all, it went off on Patriots Day in Massachusetts. Uh, and of course, Boston, the home of the Tea Party, meaning the original Tea Party. Now, all that by itself can, can means absolutely nothing. But look at what's happened in mid-April throughout uh, American history, and recent American history, obviously, at that. Oklahoma City bombing happened on April 19th, 1995. Waco assault happened on April 19th of 1993. Columbine school shooting, April 20th of 1999. And the Virginia Tech massacre, April 16th of 2007. Two of those days happened to be, again, on Patriot's Day. Now, including Virginia Tech. I don't think Virginia Tech had anything to do with Patriot's Day. But uh, there are a lot of people who put significance in these dates around mid-April, uh, especially anti-government folks, especially because of Oklahoma City bombing and Waco. So is it possible that this would happen at a very similar time because of those specific dates? Of course it's possible. But our reaction should be the same either way. It, we shouldn't freak out in one direction, and we should make sure that justice delivered in all directions. So by that I mean if it's a foreign terrorist, we make sure we find out who it is, we bring the full force of the law upon them. Okay? If it's a right-wing terrorist, the same exact thing. Because politics will enter into this. Here's what will happen. If it's a foreign terrorist, oh, the right-wing will jump up and at them, mainly the neocons. And you have to understand the right-wing is a little separated here. There's a libertarian branch and an original conservative branch who's against wars. There's, of course, the neocons who can't wait for an excuse to attack another country. So if they see that it's foreign-born, they will immediately jump up and down and say, invasion, invasion. How do I know? Because it's happened before. And they uh, criticized Democrats in the past politically for saying, oh, that this is a law enforcement matter. It's not a law enforcement matter, they said. It's a matter of war. Now, we don't know, right? Now, what if it's a right-wing terrorist group? Now, does that mean that it should also be a matter of war? And who do we invade? Do we invade ourselves? Do we invade Texas, Alabama, Oklahoma? Where do we invade? It makes no sense. Of course it's a law enforcement matter no matter what. And the flip side of that is that that law enforcement matter should be taken incredibly serious no matter what. Now, I tell you that because right in the beginning of the Obama administration, there was a Homeland Security report that was released and it was prepared actually by the Bush administration saying watch out for right-wing extremists. When that report was released, the right-wing commentators, who are not in the same batch, they're not part of the same extremists, but they felt apparently challenged by that. So Rush Limbaugh and the Fox News channels, how 
dare you ever mention right-wing extremism? And what did President Obama do? He was cowed as usual. And they said, we're withdrawing the report. Even though the report is absolutely true, it was put together by a Republican who later came out and said, what in the world are we doing? It turns out they took his division and they brought it down to only one person tracking right-wing extremism in the Department of Homeland Security. How many for tracking Muslim extremism? 25. Now, we've shown you numbers and statistics in the past that show you that over the same stretch of time that um, we're talking about here, going back to the 1990s to now, the majority of attacks have been right-wing extremists. Obviously, there's been horrific attacks by Muslim extremists, obviously 9-11 being the head of that class. Now, what I'm saying is, my God, there shouldn't be a 25 to 1 disparity, and we shouldn't ease up if it turns out it's a right-wing extremist. We certainly shouldn't ease up if it turns out it's a left-wing extremist. Now, that hasn't happened in a long time. doesn't mean it can't happen. Our reaction should be the same no matter who the culprit is. But I'm afraid, you know, as people often will jump up and say, you cannot mention anything but your thoughts and prayers right after this incident. Too soon, too soon. But the reality is this is actually exactly the right time to say, our reaction should be the same no matter who the culprit is. So this is the time to know what the just action is in fighting back. We've got to find who did it. We've got to bring them to justice. And we can't underreact and we can't overreact. We have to be sensible and rational as we seek justice. Sometimes I'm tired. Sometimes I'm shocked. Okay, now that the threat is gone in the Boston area, can we take at least a minute to consider whether the law enforcement response was a bit over the top? Here we had a major metropolitan area put on lockdown. Under what authority? We had law enforcement barging into people's homes without warrants and dragging them out. Again, under what authority? It's possible there'll be similar bombings in the future. It's inevitable there'll be mass murderers on the loose in big cities. Are those cities going to automatically be put on lockdown from here on out? We need to think of ways to deal with such situations so as to minimize the terror and to preserve our freedoms. Ever since 9-11, members of the executive branch have been speculating about and, yes, planning for martial law in the event that the U.S. is attacked again by terrorists using weapons of mass destruction. The FBI has been working with the business community through a group called InfraGuard to prepare for such a national emergency. And journalist Tim Shorrock in The Nation recently quoted an NSA whistleblower as saying that the United States has all the apparatus of a police state set in place. We're just waiting to turn the key, he said. If that's the case, the Tsarnaev brothers just gave law enforcement away in real time to test out some of their plans. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Too much has gone too wrong to keep pretending It will not be okay I think that we all feel the same We're tired of 
light-hearted, jolly topic of conversation, the fallout of the Boston bombing manhunt. Um, now, we, we're not going to be covering it in the quality way of, I don't know, have you seen the footage of the woman in on CNN talking about how quiet he's around during the manhunt? So quiet that it's almost as if a bomb had gone off. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. dear. They, they didn't really cover themselves in glory, did they? Look, I guess th- there's, no. a couple of is- there's a couple of issues here. The the first one is that there was some pretty horrible coverage coming out of the mainstream media, and I don't mean that in the sense of it being graphic and, and distressing. I mean just wrong, wrong, wrongity, wrong, 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 wrong. Oh, you mean like you mean like the New York Post public, putting on the front page yes. two, two completely innocent people and suggesting that the vigilantes go out and find them? Absolutely, and it and to be fair, it wasn't just. The, the mainstream media that really needs to have a look at itself. There was also a lot of people on sites like Reddit and 4chan who were playing amateur detective and d- declaring all sorts of different people to be the suspect, one of whom uh, they, they decided uh, that one of the suspects was a young fellow who's actually a missing person at the moment, and they decided, well, that's a perfect cover for someone who's going to be a bomber. So they named the guy, put his photos up all over uh, Reddit. But- it's also got upvotes. Isn't that the important thing? <laughs> it got lots and lots of karma. Those, those useless internet points are so important. But, but what else are they going to do? Post pictures of their really cute cats? <laughs> Let's not go there. But the uh- Oh, I better see how my cute pic- photos of my cute cats are going. It, it's... It's problematic that both of them seem to feed off one another in that the the mainstream media weren't doing a lot of you know source checking. They weren't verifying everything that they were putting to air and that was feeding into the hype on you know, online. But then it was going in the other direction. Stuff that was being postulated about online was being used as sources for the mainstream media, which then seemed to verify it. It was just an absolute mess. Well, the important thing about the whole thing is that it was able to give people who despise certain other people um, a basis for extrapolating. Now, at the moment, we don't have the faintest idea what the motives were of these two people. Uh, we know that they used YouTube. Um, we know that they were Muslim. We know that they were Caucasian. We know that they um, played sport. Uh, we know... A whole lot of random facts about them, and we've it's seen, interesting. We've seen their prom photos again online, and I think it's clear. I think we can extrapolate quite logically from that that people who go to proms are, you know, terrorist suspects. <laughs> like it's that you know, obviously there's one factor that that certain people have been banging on about because that's the line. <laughs> well, the. Uh, Speaking of getting things wrong and wanting to feed into the preconceived ideas, I think the the funniest, saddest thing was when it was revealed that uh, these two suspects were uh, ethnically Chechen. That there were the Czech Republic had to apologize. About, had to about the the Islamic Czech Republic, and it's just like, hang on. How are they news reports? I, I know that I know that the. The Czech ambassador had to come out and announce, we're an ally of the US, we're not Chechnya, yeah. quite different countries. This is actually the media, I just thought it was idiots on YouTube. No, yeah. no, no, it wasn't just idiots on YouTube. There were actual talking heads on the major networks talking about the Islamic Czech Republic. 
Is that right? You have to find the footage and show us. Thinking that was the same as Chechnya. It's just, that's, oh. That's like, hilarious. Like, I'm the European foreign policy maven. Far from it. But I do know that Chechnya and the Czech Republic are not the same thing. No, but, you know, they were, they were part of Russia. I, I remember that, that documentary film, um, Octopussy where General Orlov was determined for the tanks to come down to Czechoslovakia. Oh, no, wait, they weren't part of Russia at all, were they? No, they were outside it. That's why Orlov was going to invade them. Damn it! I could could almost be an American. (laughs) Oh, dear. So it was really... uh, I I, I don't know where news coverage is going to go from this. Like... Every time we think that it's found its nadir, it, it, it gets worse. So, uh, Dave, are you, can you explain to me any reason why we should be treating um, this incident, uh, why we shouldn't be going on about the Muslims and the, 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 fact, the religion of these people in a way that we haven't, for example, with you know, Aurora, Sandy Hook, Tucson, Columbine... Can, you know, clearly, clearly, when it's the religion that we don't have, you know, that, that many people, many commentators don't like, clearly that's when it's relevant. And it doesn't matter when the religion that they have happens to be, you know, Christianity. Or Jeremy, I, I think I think you're missing the point here. The reason that, that commentators need to focus on the religion of the two suspects is because they're both white. Now, if, it is now. See, if they were, if if they could have just been like normal terrorists and just been, you know, like Arab-looking or something, then it would be very, very easy for commentators to just focus on their ethnicity. But no, it's just too difficult. You know, we we can't talk about white people as being you know, a race addicted to violence. So we need to focus on their religion, Jeremy. I've, I would have thought that it was very clear and obvious. More importantly, maybe I don't understand what terrorism is. See, I thought that terrorism was when you blew, when you committed a, a ma- act of you know, mass terror, so you, you were terrifying society, and to, to achieve a political end. And and the way you, the way that that works is that you threaten that if society doesn't adapt in a certain way, you will do terrible things. And then when terrible things happen, you say, see society, this is what will happen if you don't, you know, adhere to, uh, 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 don't go with our demands. This, these, these weren't very efficient terrorists if they were terrorists because they forgot the part about making their demands and, you know, declaring what their motive was. You'll notice that when Al-Qaeda blows things up, they are happy to tell people about it. Because they understand how terrorism works. I don't... See, have we just redefined terrorism to be anything where innocent people are killed except for ones when they're white people with guns? It's not quite that um, that well-delineated, Jeremy, but it, there is uh, there is actually a definitive legal definition in the US about oh yeah, which is broad and pointless, isn't it? It's like yeah, but and it is effectively to do with explosives and like how big they are. So Al Capone but, was a terrorist. No, no, because he didn't explode things. I bet he did. 
<laughs> um, any any kind of somebody criminally blows up a bank vault, use explosives. What they terrorists are they now? Have we just redefined? Hang on, that's so dumb. It's like it's like redefining WMDs. They redefined WMDs. If, apparently, a small bomb is now a WMD, a weapon of mass destruction. Like, how is it they couldn't possibly find that Saddam had any of those? The, if all, if the, the threshold of WMD is that small. The other thing that you have to remember, Jeremy, is that the, the, it's also about the type of people that you're blowing up. So if you blow up an abortion clinic, you're not a terrorist. Oh. That's the important thing to remember. Uh, you know, like, like, there's just so many... Like, I mean, you're the law-talking guy. I'm, I'm just going off what I've read. Uh, I think this might be class war, where I just <laughs> we, we just don't grasp it quite the same way. It, it, it might should, be. Uh, look, I, I, I think the point isn't, isn't that... Things like the the uh, Sandy Hook and Aurora shootings should be classed as terrorism. It's more the point that this horrible, horrible crime should be treated like a horrible, horrible crime. And no, 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 Dave. Our, our criminal law was not designed to cope with people committing crimes. <laughs> when it, when a terrible crime occurs, we have to throw all of our centuries and centuries of legal development and the criminal law aside, and just run around like panicking headless chooks. Because that's the only way to defeat the terrorists, by abandoning all of our principles. See, that's the bit that I always get so confused on. I, I mean, I always foolishly believe that what defines us is how we behave when things are at their worst. And, and see, it always seems to me that if we're going to have a criminal justice system, we have to apply it evenly to people who we really, really would like to see to be punished for their crimes. But regardless of our own feelings, though, it seems to me that the criminal justice system has to be impartial, otherwise it just won't work. No, 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 you don't understand it at all. The way it needs to work is that every time something slightly different from the last terrible thing happened, we need to pass an entirely new law and throw everything that we know that we've worked really hard to develop out. Like, that's the only way to have a system that is completely inconsistent and doesn't make any sense um, and, and where injustice can properly thrive. And, and you know, Dave, as well as I do, that the definition of justice is vengeance. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> It's probably a good thing that they have blindfolds over the, like the justice lady with the scales because if she could see what was going on, she'd probably be pretty disgusted. Here at Best of the Left, supporting the good works of others is our entire reason for existence. Since the beginning of 2006, I've been making this show to highlight what I consider to be some of the best of the truly liberal media. Now I'm working on several ways to promote the best progressive activism around. Ruminate for a moment on whether you enjoy this show or consider its goals to be worthwhile, and if you do, please consider supporting this work by becoming a member for as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support. There were two things that caught my eye about uh, Boston. One was uh, from Pat Oswald, actually, the comedian. Boston, he writes, Boston, fucking horrible. I remember when 9-11 went down, my reaction was, well, I've had it with humanity, but I was wrong. I don't know what's going to be revealed to be behind all this mayhem. 
one human insect or a poisonous mass of broken sociopaths. But here's what I do know. If it's one person or a hundred people, that number is not even a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percent of the population on this planet. You watch the videos of the carnage and there are people running towards the destruction to help out. Thanks, fake gallery founder and owner Paul Kozlowski, who happens to be one of my old buddies from Boston, for pointing this out to me. And that's me saying. This is a giant planet. We're lucky to live on it, but there are prices and penalties incurred for the daily miracle of existence. One of them is every once in a while the wiring of a tiny sliver of the species gets snarled and they're pointed towards darkness. But the vast majority stands against that darkness, and like all white blood cells attacking a virus, they dilute and weaken and eventually wash away the evildoers and, more importantly, the damage they wreak. This is beyond religion or creed or nation. We would not be here if humanity were inherently evil. We have eaten ourselves alive. We would have eaten ourselves alive long ago. So when you spot violence or bigotry or intolerance or fear or just garden, garden variety, misogyny, hatred, or ignorance, just looking in the eye and, and think, the good outnumber you, and we always will. I mean, I think the sentiment is nice, and I think to a certain extent we need to be a little bit more active uh, in fighting against this and also fighting against our reaction. Uh, but uh, hopefully that sentiment goes away in doing that. A few points on the prosecution of Jokar Tsarnaev. I'm glad the Obama administration is not treating him as an enemy combatant and is not trying him before a military commission or sending him down to Guantanamo. At least we haven't slipped down to the bottom of the hill yet. But I wasn't happy about the denial of his Miranda rights for hours and hours, and that denial may actually jeopardize the government's case. And I'm not thrilled that he's charged with using a weapon of mass destruction. The common sense definition of a weapon of mass destruction is a nuclear, biological, or chemical weapon. A pressure cooker filled with nails, horrific as that was, is just not of the same scale. It's not like the prosecutors didn't have anything else on him anyway. Three counts of premeditated murder and 264 counts of attempted murder for all those he injured would have been plenty. But the Obama administration wants this to be a capital offense, so it went with the weapons of mass destruction charge. Other Democrats, like Charles Schumer and Dianne Feinstein, also want Zarnayev to be put to death if convicted. Now really, what purpose would be served by that? It would just be one more senseless death. Yes, Jokar Zarnayev must be held accountable for his actions, by all means. But let's stop the killing. I'm Matt Rothschild. And that's how I see it.
Last week, of course, brought a deluge of news, and we struggled to keep up with it, let alone weigh in. So we asked for your help. Our first question, what kind of coverage would you like to see of breaking news? Dozens of you commented on our site, and you were very clear. Pat from Maryland wrote a kind of summation of many of the other comments. Quote, all I want are factual updates when there is a new development. What I don't want is days or weeks of continuous wallowing in grief, microphones and cameras in the faces and lives of the victims and survivors, and endless speculation about causes, perpetrators, and how this changes everything. By Friday, when we asked you what you thought of the ongoing coverage of the Boston bombing, you said you were frustrated with cable news and were instead turning to the most immediate fount of information, Twitter. Lee from New York City wrote, quote, It's unfolding as we speak. The media is trying to keep up, but Twitter is an outstanding source for this. Let's not forget, a lot of news on Twitter is from the news media. Kevin Bonham of Cambridge, Massachusetts, had a slightly different perspective. He wrote to say that his media consumption on Friday was directly affected by the manhunt in his backyard. Quote, mostly this morning I'm just watching Netflix. I'm on news overload and feel like I can't trust the real-time reporting from anywhere. Plus, waking up expecting to go to work and then being told that I'm on lockdown is just too surreal. I need some escapism. And finally, we asked you what you think the media missed last week. You ready? The short list includes, but is not limited to, the trial of the former president of Guatemala, a report on the U.S. use of torture after September 11th, the Keystone XL pipeline, the trial of Philadelphia abortion doctor Kermit Gosnell, and New Zealand's passage of a gay marriage bill. Worthy topics, one and all. Now we will behave the way most news organizations do when they miss important stories. We will act as if the events never occurred. But thanks for the suggestions. Keep them coming to onthemedia.org. And don't forget to tell us where you're from and how to pronounce your name. How would you like to be able to read books and periodicals without the need for tree-killing paper, the actual ability to read, or having to pay a giant corporation for the pleasure? I sure would, but I don't think that exists. Two out of three ain't bad, though, because Audible, an Amazon company, is just such a giant corporation that can make these other wishes a reality. By signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash best, you'll receive a free audiobook of your choice, yours to keep even if you cancel within the 14-day free trial. That's audiblepodcast.com slash best to take something for nothing from a company who obviously didn't write the copy for this advertisement. The Boston terrorist attack. Well, let me start with this. People were sending me tweets asking me if I thought at the time that this was the long predicted on this show 912 incident. Because I've said many times that, you know, the next time two buildings fall down or something of comparable magnitude, I really think the worst is going to happen. I mean, I, I just can't see us doing as much in terms of anti-terror changes, as we did after 9-11, you know, 2001, going from where we already are. It's one thing to go from the society of the year 1999 and move towards where we are today. It's another thing to move from where we are today, you know, that same distance 
forward in the world of anti-terrorism. And I think it's obvious, but I don't think that the incident at the Boston Marathon is the 9-12 incident, which I said at the time in the Twitter feed, because, well, frankly, it's not big enough. I mean, when we talk about two buildings falling down, you need something that traumatizes the country for, well, a year. I mean, that's, I mean, I think we were, don't you think, Ben, like post-traumatic stress, national post-traumatic stress for a good year after 9-11, that's the kind of thing that's going to have to happen again. The problem, of course, is that if you're a betting person, you have to bet that something like that is going to happen again, which is why the whole 9-12 thing is so depressing, because any expert you talk to says that these kinds of things are going to happen because as a society, as a free society, an open society, wouldn't really matter even if you weren't that open. Societies that aren't that open get hit with terrorism. But as an open society, we are such a target-rich environment that it's not something... I mean, can you imagine, I always try to put myself in the other shoes, can you imagine trying to support the position, were you ever in debate class, Ben, speech and debate? They used to, um, the favorite thing that they would do is say, okay, uh, here's this important controversial issue, how do you feel about it? And you'd get up there and passionately say how you felt, you know, that, that, that position B was the right position, and then the debate teacher would say, okay, you get to defend position A. Can you imagine turning around and saying, I'm going to defend the proposition that there's not going to be any more large terror attacks on U.S. soil? I think that's ludicrous, even if we weren't such a target-rich environment, but we are. Every expert I've heard says that, you know, we're vulnerable, it's going to happen, it's an odds game, right? So I think what worries you is watching how we reacted to, and this is not, I mean, please, I hope the people, you know, who know people who were involved uh, and experienced anything from that terrible terror attack in Boston don't take this the wrong way, but what happened there is minor, in the world of terrorism, especially in the world of the kind of terrorist scenarios that you see some of our security experts worrying about. I mean, these people are worrying about nuclear bombs being smuggled into harbors. I mean, they're worried about threats that are going to kill 250,000 people. I mean, big, big things. Or disease smuggled into the country. You get some of these, you know, bacteriological or viral agents that are produced, uh, are weaponized and are produced to, you know, literally infect four or five people with and then have them walk around spreading this stuff. There's really nothing scarier than that. I mean, we did a history show a long time ago called Bubonic Nukes. And at the end, I tried to sort of leave a little hint, I guess you could say. I mean, I think it was the sound of a glass beaker breaking in a laboratory that, you know, we seem to think we are in a post-apocalyptic plague era. And yet, we're one good, weaponized, you know, germ being released into the public sphere from having it happen again. And nobody living today has any idea what that would be like. That's the real danger of terrorism. I'm ashamed to say, but three people dying and 180 people wounded in the Boston Marathon believe it or not, is one of those moments where the top security experts wipe their brow and say to themselves, oh my gosh, thank goodness, that could have been so much worse. Could have been so much worse at the Boston Marathon. I mean, in reality, when you think about it, again, this is going to sound crass, I don't mean it this way, but to only have three people die in that with the kind of crowds they had in that area? I mean, you think about a standard hand grenade going off in the middle of one of those clusters of people, and you should expect more than three people to die. So in a very weird way, as bad as this was, and you know, as much as we reacted to this as though, oh my gosh, it's like 9-11 all over again, 
this was a minor terror attack. Go talk to people who live in countries that have major terror attacks all the time. I mean, my goodness, look at the bombings that go on in Iraq every week. You get, you know, 75 people dead and 300 wounded. I mean, imagine if that's what happened at the Boston Marathon. And unfortunately, as I said, if you look at the security experts' writings and you read what they're saying and you use a little common sense, folks, this is going to happen. This is the scary part of terrorism. It's inevitable. It's in our future. The question is, is how are we going to react to it? And is it even possible? I mean, this is almost like a history show topic. Is it even possible to expect us in the heat of the moment to react rationally? And I think we've talked about this before many times, haven't we? This idea that intelligent people sitting down and debating this point and trying to create workarounds and defense mechanisms in our system, you know, speed bumps, roadblocks, anything like that, would sit down today and say, okay, how can we prevent ourselves from going, you know, ape crazy the next time, you know, two buildings fall down? And we've said many times the best way to do that is to craft legislation now. Do what they always talk about doing, and they do in some places, with firearms. You have a waiting period. Can't write any legislation other than anything that might close an obvious loophole that the terrorists expose. Can't write any legislation that's going to change our way of life till we've had a little time to settle down. You can't write the Patriot Act 2 and 3 and 4 in the heat of the moment. We're temporarily insane. You, thou shalt not legislate while temporarily insane. I mean, this is the way an intelligent society, not that there has ever been one, sits down and tries to confront inevitable scenarios that have the potential to change your way of life in ways that no one wants, right? Nobody wants to turn into a police state, a security state. But that's where we're heading. And it's almost because of the qualities that make us human that it's inevitable. I mean, you literally have to legislate to prevent us from doing what we're hardwired to do. Let me explain the dynamic, and I don't think you need me to explain it. Every time we have, well, first of all, start with this, this proposition and understand this. We're not repealing anything, okay? Any anti-terror legislation that we already have isn't going anywhere, all right? So any new legislation is going to be built on top of that. It's creating a foundation, a legislative foundation. There is not going to be, in our lifetimes anyway, an opportunity when people can turn around who, who, you know, have to face elections and voters and everything else and say, you know what, we're well defended enough. I feel comfortable dialing back our anti-terror laws. The anti-terror laws we keep adding all the time are, for all intents and purposes, at least in the next century, permanent. So, when you have another terror attack, even... Sorry, Boston folks. I hope you you can just insert sorry, Boston folks, every time I say this. But even a relatively minor one like the Boston Marathon, you have a natural reaction on the part of our politicians. Our system encourages it. The carrots and sticks encourage it, almost mandated. They say, how can we prevent another attack like this? What can we do? We have to do something. That's the you know, problem with the scenario. We have to do something. There's no way any legislator worth their salt can sit back and say, well, you know, I think we've done enough damage to the Constitution. This is a threat to our way of life. Um, I think we just have to sit back and accept this as the new normal. Nobody can say that. And if you did say it, you would be eviscerated by the opponent that you run in the next election with. 
Can you believe Senator Jones said that we have enough anti-terror laws? He's preventing us from doing a better job of defending your children. I mean, there's just no way in a Democratic you know, or Republican-oriented system where you can get away with doing nothing after a terror attack. But anything you do is going to be piled on all of the things we've already done. In other words, the anti-terror legislation begins to stack up. And then there's going to be another terror attack. So what are we going to do then? Now, here's the thing, folks. And again, this is where you have to be intelligent about this, I think. In a way that, again, we're not hardwired to do. You can't stop terrorism. You know, what's the old line they used to say on the Dan? Dan Patrick used to say it on ESPN. You can't stop terrorism. You can only hope to contain it. You can't stop every attack. You can only hope to stop more attacks. So this dynamic isn't going to end because the attacks aren't going to end. When is enough enough? When have you decided that you've gone as far as you can go, shutting down society, turning it into, you know, a surveillance state when the attacks keep coming? Is there ever going to be a time that the legislators are going to go, we've done all we can do. We can't ratchet down, you know, the uh, the pressure anymore in the society without doing grave damage to it. Lindsey Graham, ladies and gentlemen, wanted to treat this guy that they caught, the one terror suspect that they caught, the Chechen, the younger Chechen guy, and wanted to treat him like an enemy combatant on American soil. He's an American citizen. Ladies and gentlemen, we have gotten rid of those lines in the sand, those firewalls that are supposed to protect us from arbitrary government authority. And once you take them away, stepping over those smaller firewalls and those little lines afterwards becomes all that much easier. And the excuse for doing so are these terror attacks which aren't going to end. Now, does that make Lindsey Graham somebody who wants to live in a new version of Nazi Germany? No. He's a legislator who feels compelled to do something. That terrible phrase, you know, it's a little like Ben, it's a little like the news media, isn't it? You know, people who want to reform the way the news media works have often said, you know, you ought to have, and I've said this myself, you ought to have a newscast, doesn't really work for CNN, does it? You ought to have a newscast that's only as long as there is news to fill it with. You shouldn't feel compelled to continually make news or beat the same story into the ground over and over again. You shouldn't feel compelled if you're a legislator to always do something. But the system sort of mandates that you do. When Lindsey Graham says, well, he ought to be treated like a like an enemy combatant, he's just doing what the system encourages him to do. And if the person he's going to run against in the next election had a different opinion about it, Lindsey Graham's going to shoot him down using the fact that my opponent didn't want to do anything after the Boston Marathon to keep Americans safer. He's pro-terrorist or not anti-terrorist enough. And again, I mean... I sometimes question the intelligence of our species when I hear all these things. You know, I mean, I mean, and, and other other authors and bloggers and everything have written about this many times, and we've talked about it many times. But this whole inability to grasp the most simple of points in the whole debate we're having here, when it concerns how you treat these suspects, and that's that they're suspects. You know, when you talk about treating this Chechen who survived. Um, you know, gun battles with police and everything. When you talk about treating him like a military, um, you know, asset seized on the field of battle, you're making an assumption of his guilt. When we talk about treating these people, you know, as though they're guilty before they've had a chance to prove that they are guilty, this is where your problem comes in. And you can read people's responses sometimes in that comment section under online news stories where people will say, he's a terrorist. 
get over it, or he's a terrorist, he doesn't deserve, you know, the protections of this or that amendment, without noticing that he's not a terrorist until the law proves he's a terrorist. If you want to talk about how we treat convicted terrorists, that's one thing. If you want to talk about treating people who haven't been convicted of anything yet, who haven't had anything proven yet, who are suspected, ladies and gentlemen, we are all potentially suspected of terrorism until we're not. And terrorism itself is going to metamorphosize into all kinds of things that aren't terrorism at all. Greg Sargent reports on a poll from the Washington Post, which is encouraging at least uh, to see that this uh, attack, these bombs, will not have the effect, the same measure of effect that we saw after 9-11. In other words, we will not see the American public clamoring to have their civil rights curtailed in the wake of this bombing. From the Post, which worries you more, that the government will not go far enough to investigate terrorism because of concerns about constitutional rights, or that it will go too far in compromising constitutional rights in order to investigate terrorism? Will not go far enough, only 41%. Will go too far, 48%. So this is somewhat encouraging. Republicans despite the fact that it's been Republicans calling for uh, enemy combatant status, Republican respondents to the poll are even more strongly towards, tilted towards worrying about government compromising constitutional rights, 56 to 34. Conservatives, 46 to 41. Democrats, also 48 to 43. I suspect part of that is because uh, the president is President Obama, and so Republicans are very concerned about their rights being taken away in a quasi-Red Dawn scenario. Uh, were the President George W. Bush or Mitt Romney, I have every reason to believe, based upon past performance, that Republicans would, um, would be singing a different tune, but I guess uh, be thankful for small favors where you find them. I thank you for all the small favors I'm thinking now I hope it doesn't change us Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, 
comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. This is where I feel like modern society, and not just modern American society, modern global society, I feel like we're missing a key part of the pillars that used to make up most societies in the world in ages past. I feel like we're missing like the philosopher class. We have people that we call philosophers sometimes, but they don't play the role that philosophers used to play. We don't have anybody sitting back thinking about the big picture and sort of advising the people that run things about whether or not, you know, the road that we're on is an intelligent road to be on. And we don't have anyone who can sit there and go, all right, if you don't want to end up at this terrible destination that we all agree is terrible and that none of us want to go to, we have to put in speed bumps and roadblocks and detours that prevent us from doing what human nature and the political dynamic are going to force us to do unless we consciously try to avoid it. You're going to have to put legislative roadblocks, ladies and gentlemen, in place to prevent the, the direction we're going from being the destination we end up at. And let me just give you one right now. You want to change everything, make everything safer and better right away? Define what a terrorist is legally. Define what can be called a terrorist in the law. Who can have those extreme, super-constitutional you know, laws applied to them? And you can't just say that because that will be made too broad. You have to say it can't be somebody bringing a video camera into an agricultural facility to film downer cows. I mean, you start thinking back, could we have done anything back when the, you know, anti-racketeering RICO laws were passed to assure that what the legislators were told this law would be used for was always the only thing it was used for? Could you have said this law can only be used against organized crime elements that, you know, rake in more than a billion dollars a year, or just I'm throwing some number out there. Could you have defined what organized crime was so narrowly that there would never be an opportunity to use it against some people out there, you know, who are protesting abortions? Or, let's be honest, folks, I mean, depending on the, you know, leadership you have in Washington, same recall law could be used at, against people protesting, you know, against anti-abortion legislation. It doesn't matter. The way we use these laws are kind of blind. We don't use them against one segment of society and not the other. They just become a tool in the legal arsenal. Who should that tool, you know, the terrorist legislation tool, be used against? What's a terrorist? A terrorist is anything the law calls a terrorist. We have no definition, ladies and gentlemen, that keeps it from being used against all kinds of people that today we don't consider terrorists. There's your legal loophole. And how is it, how is it that one silly podcaster and a bunch of people who listen to his show, because I'm not the only person that comes up with these ideas, you all think like this, how is it that we can see this and the legislators who could save us from this reality don't? We need protection from our own political dynamic. Who's going to take three steps back, look at the entirety of our situation, and assess 
the intelligence of it. Who can look beyond the moment? Because we have a long history, not just in this country, but as a human species, of only being able to see five feet in front of our eyes as a people. We do things over and over and over again, completely predictable, completely understandable things, you know, given the heat of the moment, that we then regret later. What we face now is so long-term, so unending, and so potentially damaging that we may not have the chance of ever looking back and saying, you know, like we do with the internment of Japanese Americans, for example, in internment camps during the Second World War, Boy, did we overreact then. Boy, we never should have done that. We'll never do a mistake like that again. Are we ever going to have the chance, ladies and gentlemen, if things get worse and worse and worse on this terrorism you know, scale, to look back and say, boy, we really overreacted during the whole terrorism thing? Because the Japanese Americans got let out of those camps when the Second World War was over. When is terrorism going to end? And do you really think that this dynamic where our legislators feel the need to respond to every single attack in a way that ratchets up the anti-terror legislation even more, do you think that's going to end if the attacks don't end? We've always had terrorism, ladies and gentlemen. Always. In America, too. People forget. It's not going to end. But the country might not continue the way what already hasn't continued the way it used to be unless we take a holistic view of the road we're on and the destination looming in front of us in the distance. And kind of what's interesting about this whole thing is this idea that keeps popping into my head about don't let the terrorists win. What is it terrorists want? And this gets me back to Boston. Folks, the people of Boston have suffered, you know, a traumatic event. I don't want to minimize it by saying it wasn't the two towers falling down and it wasn't the Oklahoma City bombing. If you were touched by that event, it's as bad as it gets. You know, you may not have known anyone who died in the Oklahoma City bombing. You may have a friend who never made it back from the Boston Marathon. To you, it's the biggest terrorist attack that's ever touched your life. So let's not minimize that. That your child that doesn't come home from the Boston Marathon, you think about that day the rest of your life. If you lost a limb... You wake up every morning, you look at your arm that isn't there or your leg that isn't there, and you think about that day the rest of your life. If you're a first responder and you helped, you know, bleeding, wounded, screaming people, you got a taste of the stuff that our soldiers get in places like Iraq and Afghanistan that traumatizes their nightmares for the rest of their lives sometimes. You know, you can get a little or a lot post-traumatic stress disorder from doing that. In fact, so can the people in the crowd who weren't, physically impacted by those two bombs at all. They've had their sense of safety in a public place shattered forever. The entire city got a chance to feel what it was like as authorities locked it down and went block to block and everyone, you know, sat on their hands in trepidation waiting to find out if there were more bombs in other places that were going to go off and waiting to hear from loved ones who they knew were at the Boston Marathon. This is the fear that is the very root of the word terrorism. This is what they want to do to us. And there's a very different sort of feel to a terroristic attack than another tragedy that isn't so willfully motivated. I mean, you can have plane crashes that kill a lot more people. You can have dams that burst in what your insurance policy would refer to as an act of God that sweeps down a 
valley and takes out a bunch of houses and maybe you lose a ton more people. But a lot of times that's not as traumatic as willful murder, which is what happened in Boston. Those are people who sincerely hoped, it's almost safe to say, to kill more people than they actually did. There's an evil there, and it changes the entire feel of the incident. There's no evil in a plane crash. There's no evil in an act of God. Terrorism is murder. It's intent. It's other people thinking about little kids getting blown up and thinking, that's why I'm doing this. Get a few more ball bearings and nails to pack into this bomb. But the thing is, folks, and this is the hardest part of all of the whole thing, is that making terrorists unsuccessful requires us to act against human nature. Because think about what they're hoping to prompt from us. Put yourself in their shoes. To them, the worst thing that could come out of one of these attacks is that we don't do anything. They're hoping for overreactions. They're hoping we take measures that hurt us. And isn't that the irony of the whole thing? There's a boomerang effect where our anger and our pain cause us to lash out and create new laws and restrictions and, and reduce rights and, and reduce the sort of protections that terrorists have because they're terrorists without realizing that the terrorists aren't sitting around in their safe houses somewhere going, oh man, they passed more anti-terror laws. Those laws hurt us. The terrorists don't care. Most of them don't expect to live through, you know, what's going on anyway. We lash out at them in our pain and our anguish, seeking to hurt them and make them pay. But the people we end up hurting all too often is us. Who did we hurt with things like the Patriot Act? Who do we hurt when we talk about as you know, President Obama and, and Congress was talking about, you know, no Miranda rights for these people. When people like Lindsey Graham and others are talking about treating these people who are American citizens on American soil as enemy combatants, do they really hurt the terrorist? Or do they allow the terrorist actions to hurt America? And in our pain and anguish and suffering, it's pretty normal to be blinded, you know, to that bigger picture. Terrorism wins because humans respond in a predictable, understandable, knee-jerk way. That's built into the idea, folks. If you don't do that, well, that's really how terrorists don't win. But that's a very, very, very difficult thing to do when you've just lived through what people in the city of Boston have lived through. You don't want to be seeing the ironies of how anger and pain and suffering and a desire for retribution backfire. You want payback. And that's a very human way to react. Hi, Jay. This is Jordan in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. I was just calling, I just listened to the, to the Boston episode, and I was thinking uh, how, how that week, that past week, gave an interesting juxtaposition of attitudes coming from the right, because on the one hand, in the, in the, the wake of the Boston bombings, you saw 
people like Steve King from Iowa and others talking about uh, how we need to re-examine immigration policy. And uh, Steve King actually said that if we can't background check people that are coming from Saudi Arabia, how do we think we're going to background check the 11 to 20 million people that are here from who knows where? So Steve King and others like him certainly believe in background checks when it comes to uh, immigrants and that policy. And yet in that same week where we saw a bombing uh, attack um, that killed three and injured many lead people to make statements like this and to want to re-examine the push for uh, immigration reform and to want to background check immigrants. And yet that same week, Steve King and others voted against background checks on, on guns here in this country. And as we know too well, over the, over the course of the last year, there was, um, you know, numerous, numerous shootings, Aurora, uh, Sandy Hook, and others. So I just wanted to point out that, that as I was listening to that, that was just something that stuck out to me. I was really hypocritical that they actually believe in background checks for immigrants and yet uh, voted it down in terms of gun control. So I just wanted to make that point. Although I do believe, as far as Steve King, he's a representative, I wanted to say, and not in the Senate. I do believe it was voted down in the Senate. Thanks for listening, Jay. Uh, maybe you can bring up that point a little bit better than I just did. But thanks for listening. All right, bye. Hi, uh, my name is Tanya. I'm calling from Toronto, Canada. And um, I was listening to the Boston uh, bombing episode. And uh, just a point I wanted to make is uh, to, to kind of uh, clarify things. I, I think from a Canadian perspective, uh, I have a cousin who, I'm, I'm white, <laughs> and I have a cousin who is half Muslim, and he was brutally assaulted in Calgary, Canada, for no reason, purely because of the fact that he was Muslim. And, um, and he's a doctor. He was he was uh, hurt pretty badly, and it was a racially motivated attack. So I don't know. I guess my point is, um, it's uh, the shock waves are really coming out, and the, there was no reason for that. And because of what people are saying and the kind of stuff that's that's filtering through the media, uh, this kind of stuff is happening. And it's he's a that had obviously nothing to do with what happened in Boston. He's a Canadian doctor and spends his life helping people. Anyway, I just thought I'd, I'd throw that out there because I think it's important. Uh, I love the show. Thanks so much. Bye. Hey, Jay. How's it going? Chris from Colorado Springs. Um, <clears throat> love your episode, the one I just listened to about the Boston bombings. Um, I know that trying to argue with Bill O'Reilly is probably one of the most... Uh, I don't know, uh, stupid or unfruitful events or ideas that I could possibly come up with. But um, he mentioned in his little blurb that he had on the last episode of how radical Islam is the only religion that fosters or advocates terrorist murder, I think is how he put it. <clears throat> and, you know, I've been hearing recently about the that abortion clinic in Kansas where Dr. Tiller worked that just got reopened. And uh, how that's not true, you know? And it's not just Christians either, it's, uh, you know, 
people in the name of religion have been justifiedly killing each other forever. And I found it really interesting. I, I, I watched the first two episodes of that miniseries on the History Channel, The Bible. I just thought I'd give it a shot. I'd be like, hmm, you know, I just want to see what they do with this and what, what spin they put on this. And <clears throat> it just reminded me, it's been a minute since I've read The Bible, how incredibly violent that book is and how incredibly violent this miniseries was. And I wondered how many Christian families were sitting down together watching this and thinking that um, the violence that, you know, Saul or David or, you know, whoever, these Israelites are doing upon these Philistine people, that's okay, because, you know, it's, it's in the name of God. And how that ideology went all the way up to the Crusades and has manifested itself in a thousand different ways with a thousand different cultures since the beginning of our time. And, you know, for Bill O'Reilly to say that Radical Islam is the only religion that uh, sponsors terrorist murder. I just found it to be very perplexing how uh, you know, the echo over at the Fox Studios, the echo chamber must just be riddled with, I don't know, bobbleheads or something for people to actually think that guy has any idea what he's talking about. Anyway, I'm rambling. I hope you have fun at your wedding, Jay. Looking forward to the next episode. Take care. Bye. Hi, Jay. My name is Carrie Stone. I'm an LGBT legal rights and environmental activist. I'm calling from uh, Wallace, West Virginia, which is in the north central area of the state. Regarding the recent show on the Keystone XL pipeline, I'm calling actually in response to George from Florida. He wanted to know what action, if any, he should take on a variety of progressive issues. And I just wanted to let him know I can relate to his sentiments. I'm in my late 50s, and I've been marching and protesting for over 40 years. Um, and although it seems like we're moving back, backward and not forward, as a lesbian who's been advocating for marriage equality since way before it was cool, I can assure you that eventually, if we just keep at it, we will continue to make progress on the environmental front. My partner and I just finished building a house with our own two hands, out of papercrete on a tire foundation. Our plan was to get completely off the grid, eat what we grow, and so on. But our little piece of uh, almost heaven has just been invaded by Halliburton and their fracking buddies, and now we find ourselves fighting once again on another front. We've lived long enough to see gay rights become a reality, but it's pretty hard to celebrate that when they're killing the earth we live on. Anyone who wants to see photos of the house we built, it's at www.builtfromtrash.com. And for all your LGBT rights or LGBT listeners, we, we make free advanced directives. Um, that means like medical powers of attorney, financial powers of attorney, etc. free to any LGBT person who asks. Just go to rainbowlaw.com. We're not supported or sponsored by anyone. We're just activists. We, we do uh, what we can. Uh, with the skills and abilities that we have. And uh, I wanted George to know sometimes that's all activism is, and that's it really does help. It's like if everybody just gets involved and does their part, it really does make a difference. I love your show. You do not know how much help it's been uh, listening throughout all this building all these many long years, and uh, I really appreciate it. Keep up the work. Bye-bye. Hi, 
Jay. This is Daniel Platt from Occupy Albany, New York. I wanted to call in with my story of what I've been doing lately. Now, I'm employed, so I have a lot of free time. But now I'm starting a part-time job. I can pay my bills but still have lots of free time to kind of answer, answer the part about not having a lot of time to hands. Well, maybe if you have a 40-hour, 45-hour-a-week job, if money isn't everything to you, maybe you could cut those hours. But what I really want to talk about is how um, I'm a Fox Albany, but we've been uh, working on a civil liberties issue. Maybe you've heard of it, the National Defense Authorization Act, uh, indefinite torture, insert clip here from previous show. And I've been working with the Albany Tea Party on nullifying it here in New York. Now, there's not a lot we... Uh, Occupy and Tea Party agree on, but civil liberties and corruption in government are something we do. We call it cross-reach as opposed to outreach or end-reach. And we've had quite a bit of success because when we lobby in the New York State Capitol, we really turn heads. We always go, huh? Or, you're working together? Wow, this could be serious. And although we don't have a bill on the floor, we are doing a lot of great lobbying, kind of, and we're kind of building our organization. So I'll just leave you with that as a message of hope, of that we are in this together, and that um, small groups can kind of do a lot, because we're just six people. So if you don't know what you want to do to change the world, just put out an ad on Craigslist. Just start a small group, field ideas, and you might just be surprised at what you come up with. Thank you, Vaughn. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So in the previous episode, I talked about the fact that I was off to, to a, attend a wedding, and that was true, perfectly normal, uh, but much to my surprise, I came back with a, a, an absolutely uh, relevant story to tell. Uh, about sort of the, you know, in the previous episode, we're talking about the racial and cultural implications of the Boston bombing. And, and I have a, a story that goes sort of right along with that. And so this wedding, it was not just a wedding between two people, but it, it was a, a wedding between two cultures of people as well, and, and definitely a taste of the old and the new worlds. And so, you know, I, I'm going to essentially anonymize the entire story and most of the details don't matter. So uh, I, I won't get into them, but I'll just say that, you know, one of the cultures was just like mine, white totally standard American people, and uh, the others were not Muslims. Just to be, clear up any confusion as the Boston bombings have to deal with Muslims, this story doesn't. Um, but, you know, not white people. Other than that, it doesn't matter. So in, in the wedding, there are definitely different cultures and customs and even sometimes languages going on. But really, you know, almost the entire thing was completely cordial and polite, and, and everyone was sort of sensitive to the cultural differences uh, going on and, and, you know, is very aware of that. But there were a handful of the, sort of the inevitable missteps, miscommunications, and even occasional hurt feelings that comes along with intercultural meetings like that. And, you know, none of us were professional diplomats or anything, and almost none were experts of the culture that was not our own. So obviously it's really easy for people on both sides to accidentally cause offense without even knowing it. So, I mean, who, who knows how much offense was felt uh, during the entire process, but, uh, you know, I was aware of some of it. 
Um, but like I said, it, it really wasn't a major issue. The entire process uh, went off really smoothly. But there was just a slight and, you know, what I think is an inevitable undercurrent of cultural tension going on. So, you know, people's actual thoughts on the matter and the specifics of what was going on really isn't the point. So there's no need to get into it. But I overheard one thing being said that fits so nicely into the point that I was making in my comments in the last episode that I had to share it. So I heard one person expressing their frustration. I mean, it was a minor frustration, but expressing some frustration. And they said, basically, I just don't like rude cultures, you know? And so this person felt like to some extent there had been some rudeness exchanged from a person of one culture to a person of another, you know, maybe her, or maybe not. I'm not sure. But a couple of things crossed my mind immediately. First of all, cultures have different definitions of what rude is. And so, you know, something can seem rude to a person uh, outside of a culture that is really not rude inside the culture, but sort of more to the point, there's no such thing as a rude culture. There are rude people for sure, but not Oh, there's no rude culture. And so this this person who, I mean, let's say grant uh, their concern for a moment and say, okay, this person absolutely positively experienced uh, rudeness. A person was rude to them. There's no doubt about it. The thing is, they still only encountered a rude person of a different culture. They did not experience a rude culture. So bringing it back to the bombing, this is as I was saying before, there's no such thing as a criminal culture or religion, just criminal people. So in the sort of defensive positions we take in, in reactions to, you know, attacks like the Boston bombing or, or crimes of any kind, we need to focus on people rather than entire cultures. And so you can do your part by just not beating up a Muslim the next time you see one. They're probably not guilty of anything. So thanks in advance for not doing that. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. If you're not already subscribed to the show to make sure you get every episode, there are lots of ways to do it. Everything from iTunes or the standard RSS feed to a variety of great apps on smartphones, including Stitcher. And there's even a Best of the Left app made specifically for the show that's available on iPhone and Android. Thanks also and especially to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of a Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and Take you out any open door This is not my life